I am uh, really grateful to be here with you and to see all of your wonderful faces and all the beautiful dresses and, and uh, just happy, happy to be here on this day. I mean, that's not why I'm happy. I'm just saying, hey, people dress up a little bit. I'm, I'm a little more dressed up myself. I may take this off at some point. It's a little hot for me, but uh, just happy to be with you. We're glad that you are here. And, and beloved, we, if you don't know this, we set this thing up every Sunday from scratch, and on this particular day, when we celebrate the Lord's resurrection, there is an additional work that goes into that, and I'm just so grateful for all those who have come and, and come every week, but make this happen, and uh, so I'd just like to give them a round of applause. If you guys decide to switch me, you just let me know, okay? If that works, yeah. Okay, so uh, this morning, we are celebrating the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, yes? Yes. Uh, Stevie Wonder. You know, the more I keep referring back to singers, I realize more and more people have no idea who they are. (laughs) And uh, maybe you know who Stevie Wonder is. He released a song in 1991 titled These Three Words, These Three Words, maybe not one of his more popular songs, and uh, I've titled the message today, These Three Words. But what words was uh, Dear Stevie referring to? Uh, his song goes like this, it says, what, when was the last time that they heard you say, mother or father, I love you? And when was the last time that they heard you say, daughter or son, I love you. It's a nice song. And obviously, Stevie's song was about the three words, I love you. Okay? All right? And throughout time, people have have gathered together a combination of three words that that seem to be very impactful and significant and have drawn our attention to them. For instance, one person said something about these three words, specifically, think to thank. Think to thank. Think to thank and said, in these three words, these simple three words, are the finest capsule course for a happy marriage, uh, a formula for enduring friendship, and a pattern for personal happiness. Three simple words, but yet so, so important. Think to think. I love you. There are many examples of how significant and impactful a combination of just three words can be. Obviously, you know, I love you, the power of that. Uh, I am sorry. I forgive you. License and registration. <laughs> Powerful. <laughs> I am pregnant. (laughs) Where's Eric Davis 1.0? Where are you? You remember those words a little while ago, Eric? Remember? Oh, he's he's teaching. (laughs) His wife cried. It was uh, a beautiful thing. Tears of joy, of course. (laughs) But listen, in the first book of the New Testament, in the Gospel of Matthew we find quite an exceptional set of three words. So let's read it together this morning, Matthew 28. 
I'll be reading verses 1 through 8. Again, an account of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In verse 1, Matthew wrote this, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that would be Sunday, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And background, they went to the tomb of Jesus to properly prepare his body for burial. Remember that he died on Friday. He was taken down from the cross and put in the tomb. Uh, the only reason they were delayed and they ended up showing up on Sunday instead of Saturday or even that night is because Sabbath started uh, was Sunday, sundown on Friday and did not end till sundown on Saturday, and they were forbidden from doing that work under the law during that period of time. So he died Friday. They took him off the cross. Now evening had come, and then Saturday, Sabbath would extend it to the Saturday evening, but obviously they're not going to walk in the middle of the darkness to the tomb. So on Sunday, they arrive early in the morning, making their way there. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Just a note, I've always appreciated this note. Some have pointed out that it was rolled back to let others in, not to necessarily let Christ out. He didn't need it to be rolled back in order to get out, but it was rolled back so that everyone could see he got out. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became, um, that's sorry, verse 3, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, the one who rolled back the stone, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. So, this morning, maybe you, you've already figured it out, I'm sure, these three words uh, that are so impactful and significant are, he has risen. In fact, someone has said that these three words truly change everything. <laughs> and I most certainly agree, and, and so does Senia. Yes, that's it, Absolutely. And my plan this morning is to simply look a little closer at each of these three words that were spoken by the angel of the Lord at the empty tomb of Jesus, okay? That's how we'll spend our resurrection Sunday. So, the first word is he, he has risen. The person who stands behind this he 
as uh, most, if not all of you know, was not some ordinary, everyday guy who had died in the first century. No, he was entirely unique. Now, hypothetically, if the he had been just an ordinary, everyday, first century guy who had died, and some friends of his had showed up to his tomb shortly after his death, and upon arrival found an empty tomb and an angelic being saying, he has risen. Those three words would simply not have the same impact, significance, or even the same meaning as they did when they were said of Jesus Christ, who had died a few days earlier. See, my friends, it is not only the the rising from the dead, but the he that has risen from the dead that really changes everything and makes these three words so important and precious and amazing and absolutely worth the continual celebration they have been given for almost 2,000 years. Now, Why exactly am I saying that this entirely unique person who stands behind the he in he has risen is what really changes everything? I'm glad you asked. Well, concerning that matter, let me point you to something else. The angel said at the empty tomb of Jesus. You can let your eyes glance back at the text if you're still there in Matthew 28. And in verse 6, it says this, He is not here, for he has risen as he said. As he said. What does the angel mean, as he said? Well, it simply means before Jesus died, he stated that after he died, he would subsequently rise from the dead. Now, who in the world would make such a statement? Well, Jesus did, which demonstrates his uniqueness. In our reading from the Gospel of Luke this morning, that historical account includes some additional details concerning the angel's statement about what Jesus said prior to his death and resurrection. Reading again from that section in Luke, specifically Verses 5 through 9, Luke writes, Why, as he records what happened there at the tomb, why do you seek the living among the dead, said the angel? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that, extra detail, the Son of Man, must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. That implies that this whole transaction was done wrongly and be crucified 
and on the third day, rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. So, before Jesus died, before he was crucified, he told his followers that he must be delivered into the hands of sinful, rebellious, ungodly men and be crucified. And after being dead for three days, he must rise. He must. The word must there means it is necessary. It must happen. It must happen. Not it might, not it could, not I'm thinking about it, but that it must take place. Just keep that in thought, in your mind. Jesus actually spoke of his death and resurrection a number of times before it occurred. And let's look at those together. Quickly, I'll take you through some passages as we progress closer to the cross. And Jesus was speaking concerning that and what would happen in Jerusalem. In Matthew 16, you can just uh, listen as I read through these. In Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he, and there's the word again, must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter was one of uh, his disciples, his followers, saying, Far be it from you, Lord! This shall never happen to you! But he, that is Jesus, turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So there we see that Jesus relates this death and resurrection that he just foretold, he just said must happen in Jerusalem. He relates those to things being the things of God, the things of God, the plan of God, if you will. Mark 10, 32 through 34, there in that gospel, as we again draw closer to the cross, and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. It's an Old Testament reference to the Messiah, to the coming king. So Jesus goes by this term, the Son of Man. Then in Matthew 17, 22, and 23, as they were gathering in Galilee, 
Jesus said to them, the Son of Man, which again is a reference to Jesus Christ, a title he took to himself, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. It's about to happen. And they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Then in Luke 18, 31 through 34, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished by the prophets, by those who spoke for God, authorized speakers for God who wrote down these prophecies in the scriptures, the Old Testament. Everything they said is going to be accomplished in me. Everything they said concerning the Son of Man is about to happen. For he will be delivered, and then he explains, here it is, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. So it is these things that the prophets of God predicted. They are about to be fulfilled. They must be fulfilled. I'm headed there. But they understood none of these things. The whole matter of Christ's death and resurrection was not really fully grasped by the disciples until later, until after. Sometime after. We see that even in the accounts we read this morning. The ladies come back and say, he's gone. He's not in the tomb. He has risen. The angel said so. And some didn't even believe. They had to go see for themselves. They were still perplexed. They just didn't quite get it yet. Finally, Matthew 20, 17 through 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. Elevation, they're kind of moving their way up in elevation. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he always adds this. He will be raised on the third day. All right, beloved. One thing we can draw from all of these statements is this, that Jesus was clearly on a a special mission, a unique, very unique mission, a divine mission. He was doing these things in fulfillment of what the prophets had said concerning the Son of Man. And these things included his death and resurrection. They were the things of God, the plan of God. It was a mission that was part of God's sovereign plan. As I said to Peter, he said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, right? That's what he said when he tried to stop him. 
Everything written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. And he was the Son of Man, and he was making his way toward Jerusalem. He was going to be killed in Jerusalem and on the third day rise. Jesus' face was set toward Jerusalem. He refused to turn back. He was going there not to celebrate or have a party or visit some friends. He was going there to die and be raised again. But what mission is it? Such a unique mission, but what mission is it that necessitates that Jesus must die and must be necessarily resurrected? Well, listen to these words of Jesus himself. Here's the mission. Luke 19.10, the Lord said this, For the Son of Man, again, referring to himself, taking that title to himself, an Old Testament designation of the Messiah, came to seek and to save the lost. Came to seek and to save the lost. That is the mission that necessitates his death and resurrection. He came to save those who were separated or who have been separated from God by sin, which is humanity, lost. And how are you going to do that, Jesus? By dying in Jerusalem? What? Right? I mean, this is where the disciples were confused. Okay, you came to seek and save the lost, and you're telling us you're going to go die. Oh, yeah, but I'll rise again. What? Right? They just yet didn't fully comprehend the nature of this mission, the necessity of this mission. Christ makes it clear in Matthew 20, 28, what this mission is. When he says this, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. One translation puts it this way. He came, that is Christ, to give his life as the price for setting many people free. Free. Free from the penalty of sin. Free from the bondage of sin. Free from the enslavement of sin. Free from being separated from God forever because of their sin. Freedom. One writer says, here was the first clue in Matthew 20, 28 as to what the death of Christ would accomplish. He certainly kept telling them, right? I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised. As he goes on to say, he told his disciples on a number of occasions he would die. We just looked at that. But he had not indicated the reason for his death. Now it was clear that his death would be to provide a ransom for many. A ransom for many. One defines that word this way. A ransom is a price paid to redeem a a slave or a prisoner. We were both. We were imprisoned to our sin, enslaved to sin, under its rule and reign and its tyranny. It owned us. 
separating us from God, but Christ came to pay the price. The ransom paid was Christ's own life. It was a blood atonement. He gave his life. And he subjected himself to the divine punishment against sin on our behalf. He paid the price for our sins, which allowed us to be rescued and freed from its tyranny. One says the life of Jesus surrendered in a sacrificial death brought about the release of forfeited lives. Forfeited lives. But listen, my friends, listen. If there were no resurrection, if Jesus had remained dead, it wouldn't have just meant that he remained dead, just like everyone else, but rather it would have meant that the unique mission he was given to rescue sinners had failed. Had failed. And so we look at the third word in these three words that is so significant. Risen. He has risen. The one who gave his life as a ransom for many, paying the price for sin that you and I could not pay, paying it perfectly that we might be set free, forgiven, and made right with God. That one, that one, that one who died that death, that one who was on a mission, a divine mission, To rescue sinners, that one, that one has risen, just as he said. Listen, beloved, if Jesus had got run over by a horse and died, you know, just unplanned, and certainly I thought car, but there were no cars back then, so the best thing I could come up with that might kill him Randomly, was a horse. They have horses there? Donkey, maybe? I don't know. Yeah, donkey, a lot. A lot of donkeys. A lot of donkeys come through and run him over, and he dies, and then he rose from the dead. It would not be the same. It was the death that he died. It's in light of that when the angel says, he has risen, and that word risen sounds forth. Because of the significance of all that that means in light of his sacrificial, substitutionary sin-bearing death. The word risen, beloved, it has incredible significance. Again, not simply because he was dead and now he's alive. I fear that, you know, that's kind of the extent of what some think. Okay, he died. He's alive. Woohoo! You know, you can't keep a good man down. Uh, there is some truth in that statement, I guess. He, is, he was a good and perfect man. But listen, uh, it, is, it, is, it is because of what his resurrection proves that gives that word risen its impact, its significance, its celebratory nature. Huh? 
Yes? It is why we shout hallelujah. Because it demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt the complete success of his rescue mission. One writer says, without the resurrection, there could be no certainty of atonement, of our redemption, of our salvation. There could be no certainty. Let me explain that a little bit to you. Paul, speaking to those in the church in Corinth who had some coming in and were making a claim that there is no resurrection of the dead. That just does not happen. He said to those folks, and if Christ, okay, if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, guess what? Your faith is futile. It's empty. It's pointless. And you are still in your sins. You're still enslaved to sin. You're still under the guilt of sin. You still face the penalty of sin if Christ has not been risen. Why? Why would Paul say that? Think about this, too. He called him Christ there. He still, he's not saying, well, then I guess he wasn't who he said he was. He, he's still believing he absolutely was who he said he was. Christ is a title. He is the Messiah. But listen, and he proved that beyond a shadow of a doubt. But listen, if the Messiah did not get back up out of the grave, if he did not rise again from the dead, if that man is still dead, then he did not rescue us at the cross. So Paul's saying. The wages of sin, of our rebellion and disobedience is death. Separation from God, ultimately, eternally. And listen, since death is God's consequence for humanity's rebellion and disobedience against him for their sin, and Jesus, through his death on the cross, paid the penalty for that rebellion and disobedience, because of that, Jesus could no longer remain under the penalty of death. One writer puts it this way, I've Shared this with you before at another resurrection service, but I, it's so good, so crystal clear. He says this, When Christ died and shed his blood for our transgressions, he atoned for the sins that killed him. Our sins. Not his own. Ours. Since those sins are now covered and paid for, there was no reason for Christ to remain dead. His death was solely to pay for our sins. When they were perfectly paid for, there remained no warrant for his death anymore. It would be unjust to keep him in the grave. He could not stay in the grave. It was impossible for him to be held in his power, Acts 2.24. And that whole verse, Acts 2.24, says this, God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. He crushed sin. He broke its back. He paid the price. He rendered it powerless. Proof? He rose 
from the dead. But if Christ had not been raised, then as I said, it would mean that his sacrifice was evidently insufficient to pay for our sin debt. Or he would remain indebted to it by the fact that he remains dead. And therefore we are still in our sins and no rescue has occurred. Do you see the glory of this day that we celebrate? One writer says the resurrection was indispensable evidence of the completion and efficacious value of his death. It was the Father's way of saying your death accomplished its intended purpose. It was God raising him from the dead to affirm that what he did on the cross satisfied fully God's holy justice. If he didn't raise, then his death has no saving value, beloved. But he did rise. He did rise from the dead, and when he was raised, it was as if God said, I accept the sacrifice. I accept it. A sacrifice you and I could never make. A price you and I could never pay. He paid it in full, accepted by his Father, proven through his resurrection. Okay, there's one more word. What is it in these three words? We did that one. But that's a good one. Has. He. No ordinary he. That's true. Out of the mouth of babes. He has. He has. He has risen. Now, you know. What are you going to do with that word, Jeremy? Well, here's what I'm going to do with that word. (laughs) It demonstrates that his rising is a historical reality. It is a historical reality. After his rising, he appeared. He appeared. He rose and appeared to many. The... We call him, we call those his post-resurrection appearances. Just for fun. Let me go through them quickly. He appeared. He has risen and he appeared to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, John 20, 14 through 16. Then he appeared to the other women on the road, Matthew 28, 9. Then he appeared to two disciples traveling to Emmaus, Luke 24, 13 through 32. Then he appeared to that Apostle of his, Peter, Peter, who tried to forbid him from carrying out his mission, he appeared to him, Luke 24, 34. He appeared to the ten assembled disciples, John 20, 19 through 20. Then to the eleven assembled disciples, John 20, 26 through 29. Then to the seven disciples fishing, John 21, 1 through 23. Then to the eleven disciples in Galilee. I pause for breath. Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Then to over 500 people. According to the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, 6. To James he appeared, his brother. 1 Corinthians 15, 7. 
Then to all the apostles, Luke 24, 44 through 49. Then to all the disciples at his ascension, Acts 1, 4 through 11. Then to Paul on the road to Damascus, Acts 9, 1 through 6. And again to Paul imprisoned in Jerusalem, Acts 23, 11. A number who saw... This risen Christ, a number of them, maybe not all, but a great number of them, suffered for proclaiming and making known this risen Christ. That Jesus who died, he has risen again. Some of them died. They had to die for making that profession, for holding to that conviction. Beloved, listen. For any of you who doubt the reality, the historical reality of this statement, he has risen, consider that for a moment. This, I think, is one of the strongest reasonable arguments for why you can't doubt the reality of what happened. These these men and women died who saw Christ. They died saying they saw Christ, that he is risen, you must bow to him, he is the Lord. Now, beloved, if they weren't sure that he had risen, or they were making the whole thing up, huh? Well, yeah, you might do that until that meant facing death and suffering and torture. Who would do that? Who would, who would be willing to die and die tragically for a lie? Like that, who would say, hey, you know what? We're just kidding. We're just kidding. All right, all, all bets off. He hasn't really risen. We just made it up. <laughs> Don't kill us. Don't release the lions to eat us alive. Don't do it. No, they stood their ground because they could do no other. They had seen the risen Lord, and it forever, forever changed them. It is a historical reality. The evidence is abundant if anyone would willingly, truly look openly at that evidence. It changes everything. As my dear brother said this morning, no other founder, no other prophet has risen from the dead and then showed himself to people to prove it. They all still remain underground or dissolved. Not Christ. Now, beloved... It's a historical reality. So for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, our hope is attached to that resurrection. For his rising again demonstrates the reality of our rescue, proves it beyond a shadow of a doubt. So we are not hoping or with wishful thinking, looking toward him rising again. You know, he's in the grave. I hope one day he rises again. No, he rose again. So our hope is as certain and solid as that historical fact. You can look back and say, no, he rose again so that I know I have been rescued. I have been redeemed. I have been cleansed and forgiven. And I will, like him, be resurrected again to live with my God, my creator, forever. And I know that because he has risen. 
not maybe, not my, not I hope he does. He did. Listen, he stayed in the grave three days. One that demonstrates prophecy that pointed towards that period of time. It also proves uh, that he was dead, guys. Okay, this was no resuscitation. He's not like, hey, you know, a couple hours, he's back up. Well, maybe he didn't die. Three days, dead, okay? But he also didn't wait a long period of time so that we would know, that the believers would know that what he did was a success. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm almost out, though. I'm almost out, brother. The tank is almost empty, and so we come to a close. For you Christians, it is our hope. And by the way, for Christians who, you know, as we, we go through life and we have doubts, right? Sometimes we doubt. There's no need to doubt. Look back. Remember, he's not in the grave. He has risen. And remember all that that implies and means. And then rejoice. You doubt God's love? Don't doubt it. He has risen. You doubt God's power? Don't doubt it. He has risen. You doubt God's wisdom? Don't doubt it. He has risen. Rejoice, Christian. Rejoice. He did not die in vain. He died to secure our hope, our salvation. But finally, this undeniable historic reality has implications for non-Christians as well. And maybe... uh, and there are implications that can't be ignored. They can't be ignored. So if you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus Christ in a saving way, you, you have not been saved, you have not turned your life over to him, you have not repented of your sins and called out upon this one, the only one who can redeem you, then I have a word to you. Repent, believe, and be saved. No longer push this aside. It is this historical reality that makes it impossible to ignore Christianity. It makes it impossible. And let me give you one reason why. First, it happened. What are you going to do with that? This guy rose from the dead. And, and folks, listen, because it's so powerful, people try to undermine and say, ah, oh, that didn't happen. Anyone, as I said, who will look at the evidence will have to walk away saying, it did happen. Now what? Let me give you an implication. He has risen. And if he has risen, let me remind you of what Acts says. It said that God rose him from the, raised him from the dead. God did. His father, God. God raised him from the dead. Yeah? That's right. Now, do you think God would raise a liar from the dead and have everyone look to him as the source of salvation when he was telling lies? I think not. God is a God of truth. He tells no lies. He can only speak the truth. He rose this one from the dead. He said, look to him. And what that does is it validates everything this one said. This resurrection by God validates all that he said. You know what he said? He said, I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one, no exceptions comes to the Father, his Father, except through me. Non-Christian, 
hear those words and believe. Turn to the one, the only one who can redeem you, who has paid the price for sin on the cross that you might be set free, forgiven, and made right with God and one day be resurrected to live with your creator forever. Turn to this one right now. Turn to him right now. We plead with you. We have prayed for you. I weep for you. Turn to him as we have and then you as well can truly not just observe this day as another day on the calendar, but rejoice in it. Celebrate it for all that it is and means to you because you have believed in that risen Savior who died for you. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, glory to you. Glory to the Son. Glory to the Spirit. We rejoice. We who have had our eyes open and our hearts changed and our ears unstopped that we might hear the good news rightly and think correctly about it and turn to our Savior in repentance and faith. We rejoice. He has risen. The three sweetest words, most powerful words ever spoken. He has risen. May it restore great hope and confidence to our souls. May it strengthen us in the inner man. May it remind us of your power and your wisdom and your love. Your greatness, God, and may that cause us to give you the glory always that you were due. He has risen. Father, for those who are in no relationship with you right now, they still remain in rebellion against you, Father. Might they hear these words anew, and might it cause them to bow before this risen one. And ask him to save them. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, your scriptures say, will be saved. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.